We're continuing our series on the Holy Spirit this morning. If you want to follow the reading, we begin from John in chapter 3. Those of you who attend regularly will already have realised that Nigel preached on this passage uh, in October last year. And I do encourage you, log on to the website and listen to it again. Uh, But for those of you who are wirelessly connected to everything, uh, I'd really appreciate if you just delay doing so until I've finished. (laughs) John 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you did not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So Nicodemus, we read, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's not simply a community leader. He's a national leader. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, Israel's highest ecclesiastical or religious court, part of the temple hierarchy. And Jesus also calls Nicodemus Israel's teacher, reflecting that he is a recognized teacher of Old Testament scripture. He's a man who knows the Old Testament scriptures uh, better than anyone in this room. And he's an experienced man. He's the veteran of many a theological debate. And he's mature in years. So this guy is not in any sense a pushover. Now, I remember once mulling, uh, mulling over uh, an issue. Um, it was a, a particular issue about somebody. And uh, I couldn't get a handle on it. I was sitting in my office. And I was, I was praying on it, but somehow I just couldn't quite get traction. Uh, and then I had a light bulb moment. And I thought, well, this is, this is crazy. Why don't I just ask them? Uh, and my hand went for the phone. Now, it's accepted generally that Nicodemus... He approached Jesus at night because he did not want to be seen doing so. He didn't want it to get out that he'd been consorting with Jesus. But he clearly knew how to find Jesus 
and Jesus must have been nearby. So maybe he just thought the Hebrew equivalent of, oh, blow this, why don't I just go and ask him? Okay, his hand won't have reached for the telephone for obvious reasons, uh, so he set off into the night. Okay? It's also worth noting that this is not the only time we encounter Nicodemus in Scripture. Uh, in John 7, we read of him successfully intervening on behalf of Jesus with the Sanhedrin. He points out to the chief priests and the Pharisees that they had arrived at a verdict on Jesus before there had been the small formality of a trial. Is that how we do things around here? Is the question he posed. And he shamed them, at least on this occasion, into backing off. It just struck me. Do you know there are, there are those, even today, who prefer to go straight to a verdict about Jesus without the small formality of, of considering the evidence. And in John 19, it's Nicodemus who turned his labour and a considerable amount of money to the aid of Joseph of Arimathea to give Jesus an honourable burial. So... <clears throat> You know, Nicodemus the coward is often how we hear of him and how we, we speak of him. But I, I kind of take two lessons from this, this man. Number one, go to Jesus. There's no need to wrestle alone. Go to Jesus. You know that cliche about Jesus being the answer? It might have moved into being a cliche, but it never stopped being true. And secondly, well, Nicodemus might have started off badly. But he ended up speaking for Jesus when few others would. And later serving him when most of his followers had evaporated, disappeared like the morning dew. We Christians are not defined by where we start from. We're defined by where we're going. Okay? So I'm actually encouraged by Nicodemus for all his faults. So the scene is set for the encounter. Nicodemus comes alone, which suggests that he might actually be more interested in finding some answers than scoring some debating points. And he gives some impression of wanting to apply his Old Testament teaching, the things that he already knows, to the phenomenon that was Jesus. Now... Turning up in the middle of the night was then, as it is now, uh, considered a little rude. Okay? Uh, Jesus was not obliged to see him, uh, but he still chose to. And I think, you know, we should be reminded that seekers are not always going to approach us politely uh, or at a convenient time. Uh, and indeed impolitely and at an inconvenient time is pretty much par for the course. But just as Jesus did, we should choose to see them. So Nicodemus opens with a neutral, neutral statement of facts. Firstly, he recognizes Jesus as a rabbi and a teacher. Now that is a very unusual position for anyone in the Sanhedrin to take. They did not recognize him as these things. He was an upstart. 
And secondly, he noted that Jesus performed miracles. Um, if Jesus is there and he's performing miracles, it's pretty hard to ignore them, you know, as, a, as a, another layman runs past, you know. Jesus cuts to the chase. He comes straight back at him with the answer to a question that Nicodemus had yet to ask. So to verse 3, which begins with the phrase, very truly, those of us who are a little older in years will remember that as truly, truly. Um, it means he's about to say something serious and important. F.F. Bruce says it's a double amen, but personally, I find it helpful to paraphrase it as listen up. Okay? So, listen up. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus, this teacher and debater of the law, seems completely thrown, utterly baffled. And Jesus responds, Very truly, listen up. I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Okay, <clears throat> the grand of the restaurant or, or a gastro pub or whatever the eating establishment might be, the more likely it is that the food uh, on the menu will sound like a geography lesson. Okay? Um, Pan-fried breast of Welsh free-range chicken served on a bed of a fresh Italian polenta with a symphony of Provençal truffle shavings and garlic-infused roasted Mediterranean vegetables. Now, if that's the dish that appeals to you, when the waiter comes to take your order... What are you going to say? I'll have the chicken. <laughs> I'll, I'll, have the, I'll have the chicken. I mean, have you seen the size of the pads those waiters <laughs> carry? He's not going to get all that down. And I suppose if there's more than one chicken dish on the menu, he might write something like chick poll, okay, to make sure you get the right one. Okay. It's, none of those descriptions are actually incorrect. It is not necessary for you to say, I'll have the pan-fried breast of Welsh free-range chicken served on a bed of fresh Italian polenta with a symphony of fresh Provencal truffle shavings and garlic-infused roasted medjury vegetables, please. <clears throat> it's perfectly okay to ask for the chicken. As long as everyone in the restaurant, the kitchen staff, the waiters, the customers, everybody, share a common understanding... And it's perfectly okay for anybody in the chain just to call it chicken. It's perfectly all right. But if they don't share a common understanding, then the possibility arises that someone is going to be served an unaccompanied piece of raw chicken. Probably not even Welsh. <laughs> now the word used here for born is anoven, which has three possible meanings. Born again, born from above, or both. So when we talk about being born again this morning, what we're saying is being born again and born from above of water and the Spirit. 
And it's quite important we get our heads around this so that we share a common understanding of what we're talking about, and particularly born of water and of the Spirit, if we're going to shorthand it. And we do shorthand it all the time. So it's very important we're, we're on the same shorthand. Or someone gets the raw chicken. <clears throat> now on those Sunday evenings uh, when there are no prayer meetings, uh, I'm obliged by my wife to sit down with her and watch a program called Call the Midwife. (laughs) It's on the same time as Top Gear. I am not bitter. Now, as you'd expect, Call the Midwife features the birth of many babies. And in one scene of suitably high drama, a midwife said in panic, the baby isn't ready to come out. Which is, of course, total nonsense, because it isn't up to the baby. Okay? Birth is something that happens to the baby. It's the mother, as mothers in this room would tell you, who do the pushing. Now, in the same way, being born of water and of the Spirit happens to us. The Holy Spirit himself is the active agent in the new birth. Uh, And to really impress you, as Piper puts it, the new birth is the result of the free and sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, preceding and enabling our first act of saving faith. Now, it's the position of some commentators that being born of water means getting baptised. Now, all I want to say on this is that a decision whether or not to get baptised should not hang on the interpretation of this one piece of scripture. There's plenty of other scripture on the subject to instruct us in the baptism of all believers. And as you know, Nigel is ready, willing and able to talk to you about that because we have some baptisms coming up. Now, others say that being born of water speaks of the the mother's water's breaking, uh, something that's got to happen before a baby is born. Um, But most, most make the connection between water and the Old Testament concept of cleansing and renewal. We read this in Exodus 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. Before an individual could take up their duties as priests of the Lord, essentially, before they could draw near to God, they had to wash in water. And this was so that they will not die. Uh, In Ezekiel 36... Um, where God speaks his promise of restoration, 
we read from verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. A born of water in the spirit. And we shouldn't uh, forget Joel 2.28, the famous prophecy where God says he will pour out his spirit on all people and that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You'll have gathered from the passage, Jesus is a bit disappointed with Nicodemus. Um, I think it's firstly because the guy who taught everyone else zeroed in on the meaning born again and the literal physical implications of it and had missed or ignored born from above. And despite knowing intimately his Old Testament scripture, which we've just had a very quick look at, Nicodemus didn't associate any of this with the words of Jesus. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said at one point. And do you not understand these things? You, you sense exasperation, don't you, really? And, and before we get too comfortable, uh, because we understand everything, don't we? Um, I've got to just say that the heart cry of anyone in Christian leadership, of any pastor um, dealing with a serious pastoral issue, it, it's often this, whether they articulate it or not. They're there with someone they care about and they love and they cannot understand why they aren't already doing, why they aren't already walking, why they aren't already living the scripture that they should know. You know you're kind of thinking, but you should know this. You shouldn't need me to tell you. And if you did know this and you were putting it into practice, we would never need this conversation. Okay, so let's just be careful. You know, when we, Nicodemus. We read in verse 6 that flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And um, this verse is our explanation of why being born of water and the spirit is a necessity. Flesh, which is essentially us as we are, cannot unassisted be born again. We need the Holy Spirit. Uh, Translated in the NIV, uh, Paul's terms for, as it were, before and after being born again are without the Spirit and with the Spirit. Uh, Although some of us who are a little older might know that as uh, natural man and spiritual man from older versions. So in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, starting at verse 14, we find this. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. 
The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we are born again, and we are born from above. The recipient of free and sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And we're born again, and we're born from above, to become children of grace, cleansed and renewed. And by this work, we gain spiritual understanding, the mind of Christ, and enter into the kingdom of God. Now, just to be absolutely clear, Jesus uses the word must. And if you want to check what that means in the Greek, it means must. (laughs) To know God, you must be born again. It's not optional and it's not negotiable. You are either born again or you are not. If you are born from above, if, sorry, if you are not born from above, you cannot know the mind of Christ, nor enter the kingdom of God. There is no other way. And let's be clear that being born again is not the end of something. <laughs> it's the start of spiritual growth. Uh, we read in James 1.4, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. We are born again to grow up into mature Christians. And James 1.4 points out that that will take perseverance. which brings us to verse 8 of our passage. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's actually, ultimately, not up to Christians who is born again. There is an element of sovereignty here which is just way above our pay grade. It is impossible for us to work this out or to understand it. Now, for those of us who've been praying you know, long and hard for people we care about, and that, you know, I include myself in that, our starting point is very important. And our starting point has to be gratitude gratitude, indeed amazement, that we ourselves have already become children of grace and are therefore in a position to ask at all. That is an important and necessary perspective. Now, switching tracks for a second, personally I find the the parable of the sower tremendously liberating, for it defines my responsibility as sowing But it doesn't make the growth of the seed my responsibility. I can't be passive. 
for sowing the word in, in the many forms that that takes, well, that is clearly my responsibility. And that rests with me. But what the word I sow matures into, the ultimate fruitfulness of it, is the sovereign and perfect work of God. And where there is fruitfulness, the praise is his. So we mustn't ever, ever stop praying or reaching out uh, or developing a godly passion for the lost and, and turning that passion into positive action. But ultimately, we have got to rest in God for the outcome. Okay? Now, that could be read as a, as a, get, a get out, really. Oh, well, you know, I sowed. It wasn't my fault nothing came of it. No, 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 no. It is not that. It is not that. Okay? But I know that there are people who have prayed for years in tears and crying out for people that they love. And those people are not yet in the kingdom. And we have to know that it is a sovereign work of God to get them there. Don't give up. Don't give up on them. But it is a sovereign work of God. In other words, it is not your fault. Now the context of this verse is clearly that of being born again. Uh, but we must make sure that we don't extend the wind metaphor uh, into more than it is. Um, I'm likely to get into trouble for this, but I call it windy theology. Windy theology adopts as a central principle that essentially all I have to do is turn up. After all, the Holy Spirit blows where he pleases. And Windy Theology states that if God wants us, well, he knows where to find us. And thus absolves us of any personal responsibility for what has gone before or what comes to pass. Now, you say it flat out like that. Shows it to be, well, it, it's nonsense, isn't it? It's absolute rubbish. But if we're honest, we've all been known to practice it. Windy theology ignores Matthew 6.33, which tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Or Matthew 7.7, 7, which tells us seek and you will find. Or James 4.8, which tells us that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Seek, seek, draw near. These are not passive activities. These are not something you can do in your sleep. And nor are they ones which start at the first bars of the first song on a Sunday morning. When we meet on a Sunday, this is supposed to be a gathering of people who have already been individually seeking, joining for the purpose of seeking together. Yeah. When we meet on a Sunday, this is supposed to be a gathering of people who have already been drawing near to God yeah. and to whom God is near to them as a result, yeah. joining for the purpose of drawing near to him together. Yeah. Okay. When we meet on a Sunday, 
It's supposed to be a gathering of people who have already been worshipping individually, joining together for the purpose of worshipping together. And they are such precious outcomes, so precious. You will find him. He will draw near to you. We will find him. He will draw near to us. Now, windy theologians may at this juncture be tempted to point out that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, we read that there was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Uh, That is true. You've got to pose the question, though, what were those folk doing immediately before Pentecost? They were all together in one place, seeking God. Now, we read in Matthew 18 and verse 20, For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. It's a familiar verse. We know it well. The ascended Jesus has left us the Holy Spirit, and when we meet even a few of us, he is there. Now, whether there's a sound like the blowing of a violent wind uh, or not, the reality is that the Holy Spirit is here now this morning. There's a a danger sometimes that we relate the presence of the Holy Spirit to how we feel. Okay. Um, It's a difficult one because, um, you know, one thing that charismatic Christianity has brought us in all its richness is, is emotion, Understanding and getting a hold of the emotion of God and, and being free to express emotion back. Okay. The danger is that that's all it becomes. Okay. And we can say, uh, and I've done it, you know, you go it, oh, you know, the spirit was really there this morning. I really felt him. Well, I'm thrilled to bits that you felt him, but he's there every morning. He's there every, every Sunday. Okay. It's not about how we feel. Although God is delighted to relate to us on an emotional level. So we've just got to be careful that how things are don't detach from how we feel. So the reality is he has turned up. We can't say, in a sense, to the Holy Spirit... I'm here. What are you going to do about it? Can we? The proper response is to say, you're here. What am I going to do about it? So, turning to another familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 12. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. 
To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. If we look at verse 7, we can see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is given for the common good. Okay, And again, I just have to be careful here, but I want to make a differentiation. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit is given for the common good. And that actually is more important than is given to make me feel good. Yes. Uh, okay, now, please don't get me wrong. Often the two come together. Okay, we don't want, don't want anyone walking out going, oh, it's wrong to feel good. You know, pl- please don't do that. But preeminent, preeminent is the common good. Yes. Now, the gifts contribute towards the common good by being shared in and manifest through Those occasions where two or three or more gather in the name of Jesus. Okay? And we're reading Ephesians uh, 2, 22. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So if we individually internalize the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Or or put another way, if we're consistently silent, then we do not add to the common good. I'm going to say that again. If we individually internalize the gifts of the Spirit, or put another way, if we are silent, then we do not add to the common good. And we are slacking off our part of building together. Whoa. So, the Holy Spirit is here. What am I going to do about it? The Holy Spirit's here. What are you going to do about it? The Holy Spirit's here. What are we going to do about it? Well, I, I realise that when you get to something that's as in your face as that, it's possible to feel like someone is, you know, in a loving and wholehearted way um, and being very inclusive, uh, putting your arm up your back, okay, to do something you don't want to do. Okay. Uh, well, look. It is, it is not the heart of, 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 of me or, or of the elders or of anyone in leadership in this, in this fellowship to bully you. We, we, we can't. We can't do that. Okay? All we can do is repeat the challenge that is laid down in Scripture. And I've tried, uh, I've tried faithfully to do that. There is no requirement 
on anyone to be particularly stylish in their response. <laughs> There's, there, there isn't uh, an acceptable and an unacceptable way of responding to the Holy Spirit. Okay, there, there, you know, there really isn't. Okay, um, if you want to look cool, um, I think you'll find that that will set up some kind of conflict. Uh, okay. Because what you're really saying is, you're here, what am I going to do about it? I'm just going to completely give you everything, Lord. So, I really, <laughs> I really prayed a lot about this. I had this very challenging sermon, and I didn't know what to do in terms of ministry. Okay, on the one hand, I didn't want to be ungracious, and I didn't want people to feel they were being shoved. But on the other hand, I wanted to press the word of God. Uh, on the one hand, I wanted people to be um, free. Uh, on the other hand, if you follow, I wanted people to be free. <laughs> so, if you're not born again, and, and, or if you're not sure you've been born again, and I, I just have a sense that there's, there's folk there, um, in a moment... Uh, would you, um, uh, uh, when we bow our heads, um, I'm going to ask you to, to, to seek Nigel and Callie. So we're going to start there. Would you mind just bowing your heads, folks? So if this is, if this is you, if, if you're just not sure that you've been born again, could you just indicate... Okay. Okay. Thank you. And if you're seeking God to be filled uh, with the Spirit or for a particular gift of the Spirit because you want to contribute to the common good, um, I wonder, can you indicate? Just wave a hand. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And if you're, you're, uh, you're born again and you're filled with the Spirit, you're not looking to God this morning for any particular gift of, of the Holy Spirit. Just while we're going to have a, a, a ministry time, um, could you just stay where you are and as quietly or as loudly uh, consider personally that central question? Holy Spirit, you're here. What am I going to do about it? 